Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. To a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Trade Coffee. Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash mission log. To get started, take the quiz at drinktrade.com slash mission log and start your journey to the perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash mission log for $20 off your first three bags. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 69, another one with your comments. Welcome everyone to a very special supplemental edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. And I like to think that every episode is a special episode. The regular episodes are special. The supplementals are special. Maybe this one is just even more special because it was unexpected. It's certainly going to be special for somebody. (laughs) It will be. It might be special for us. It might be special for listeners. It'll definitely be special for the people who are hearing their words broadcast back to them and to the rest of our listeners. So uh, what are we doing today, Norman? Well, we're doing a a kind of a special format. And here's something, John, I think that a lot of people that are like supporters of podcasts or listeners or people that, you know, uh, follow social media there's always kind of like this excitement when your comments get acknowledged or read on the air or alluded to, or part of the conversation with like the hosts of the show that you like. I remember when, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still a fan of, of very many podcasts and when I have the off chance of them like uh, retweeting, like one of my tweets or answering one of my emails personally, I think there's something special. And I think that's really a, a great way to stay engaged with the people that support your show, both uh, in in say the Patreon format, but also in just the we enjoy your show and we'd like yeah. to tell you why email kind of format, and that's kind of what we're doing today. Yeah, and today we've got a mix of comments and some you know critical, some supportive, and and some really the most important part here is just engaging with us on the ideas that we talk about in Mission Log. That's really what all this feedback is always about. It's that conversation that Mission Log is. And um, let me just be very upfront and honest with our audience as to why you're getting this show in the feed this week. So we decided to take time off in between our coverage of DS9 and our start of Voyager. Uh, That was necessary. It was mandated by our boss. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he said, take time off. So we're doing that. And we also had some uh, interview content that became more difficult to schedule. So that that is not off the table. It will come. But in order to reach our deadline for Voyager, we needed to uh, to fill in and move that interview a little further down the road. So here we are after we've done the roundtable where Earl kind of quizzed us with people's comments and questions. Now we've got, we're opening up the mailbag as right. it were. And we some email, some social comments, uh, uh, just, you, you know, comments from different places. So 
that's what we're going to do today. And I uh, enjoy, and, and by the way, this is the kind of thing that we would do in Mission Log Engage. I think there might be a little bit of confusion. Some people ask where they can download Engage. You don't. You get that on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com slash Roddenberry Prod or Roddenberry Entertainment. And uh, we're doing that as a video show. And they're about, uh, I don't know, maybe around 10 minutes each where we can just discuss your comments and questions. So that's what you do there. But we're dropping this into the main feed so everybody can hear everything. And we're respecting that the time on a tradition that we have on Mission Log where we say, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Well, this is one of those upcoming episodes that we're going to use your comments on. Here it is. Here it is. It's either here or engage. So, That's right. um, Yeah. So why don't you kick us off and uh, let's see where we're going to go. Okay, so this one was from Twitter because we read Twitter, we read mm-hmm. Facebook, we read uh, the emails and everything in between. This one's from Twitter and this one's from Stuart. Having started listening towards the end of TNG, DS9 was the first series I heard you cover all the way through. And I was one of the often disagreed with your takes, people, but always enjoyed the show and always disagreed in a it's a fun to have debate way. Fantastic work. Okay, cool. Well, look, that's the perfect way to start this off because Stuart gets it. It, it. It's like we can disagree, we can have different opinions and come to different conclusions, but it's all about just engaging in this conversation. And mm-hmm. as you and I have often said, this is the kind of thing where um, – you know, our word is not gospel and Mission Log is not an encyclopedia of every opinion ever to be had about Star Trek. It's our gut, honest reactions um, that we work very hard on all week long. And then this is the kind of thing where, like, if we ran into you at a bar at the Vegas convention, this is the type of conversation that we would have. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's always been it's it's always been a part of the process to try and elicit more conversation than just say have these very polarized opinions from either say us to the listeners or the listeners to us once we start doing that we start losing the nuance of what we're discussing and it becomes more of a proving ground of our ideals and our beliefs for something that is simply entertainment so Once we can uh, remove the, the ego and the emotion out of the equation, uh, because we all have our favorites, we all have things that we love, and we all get very defensive about the things that are personal to us. But when we do that, we remove the ability to be able to look at things and articulate things critically with the ability to see the other's point of view. Well, cheers to that, my friend. So that Stuart's tweet sets the tone. That that absolutely sets the tone for what we'll do today. And I'll get into it with the uh, the next comment here. And this is an email from Bilateral Rope. Love that. Mm. <laughs> All right. So uh, they say, after listening to your thoughts on the DS9 finale, I've got two questions I'd like to know your thoughts on. Did Section 31 make the war worse? And uh, they explain here, in the past, we have seen that the Dominion places a high priority on preserving the lives of the founders. Their entire justification for conquest is to protect the founders from solids. Normally, when they're losing a war, I'd expect them to try whatever they can to ensure the founders survive. That would allow a negotiated end to the war once they know they're losing. But Section 31 screwed that all up. 
female changeling can't see any outcome which leads to her species surviving. Maybe she has even learned that the virus is artificial. So all she has left is taking revenge on as many solids as possible, provoking everyone into causing as much death and destruction as possible. Then Odo comes along with the cure, the one thing that can prevent the founders going extinct. That's a very strong bargaining position, especially when telling them where the virus came from uh, comes with the implicit threat that the solids could do it a second time. And then the next question in a bilateral ropes email here. How sure are you that the Pa race are enemies of the prophets? We've seen them manipulate everyone through all sorts of means. Vague prophecies, creating Cisco, directly altering Zex, and pretending to be surprised at the outcome before altering it a second time. We don't know what their motives truly are, only that there would be much easier ways to get rid of a book if that was their only goal. Splitting off a separate faction to act as a convenient enemy would fit. All right, that is from Bilateral Rope, those two. So uh, what do you want to take on first, Norman? Uh, in order there, did Section 31 make the war worse? Well, before I, I do that, mm -hmm. is, is there some type of attempt to tie in that the PA wraiths are the Section 31s of the Prophets? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Is that what I'm reading from that oh, second no. part of the paragraph? Oh, no. Wow. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm throwing that out there. That's just what my gut reaction was. So, because I was go. actually paying more attention to this, did Section 31 make the war worse? Well, that's, that's a very large conversation. I think what Section yeah. 31 did do was obfuscate the truth. Yeah. And that may have made the war worse, or since. Since uh, the Federation Council, and we heard this at the end of Dogs of War, had the knowledge of the cure and chose not to use it based on Odo's response to what Captain Sisko said about they're not going to use it. Mm -hmm. And Odo said, okay, your stance is formally clear on this. Thank you for not helping me. Mm -hmm. Did that make the war worse? So you can't, I don't think you can really say that did Section 31 do something to increase the the acceleration of what happened to the founders. I mean, obviously they created the virus. Yeah. Did that make the war worse? That's obviously for speculation, but I think what it basically did was make everyone chase their tail in a way where they could have probably ended the war sooner than later. So, yeah. And, and look, it's not out of the question that whether it's Section 31 or just Starfleet Medical or the Federation Council or whomever, that they might have some secret information like, oh, look, this virus is going to wipe out the founders. But what was so strange is all the subterfuge around not letting that be part of the bargaining tactic from the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, um, there's I feel like we've sort of litigated this one to death <laughs> and and my problem with section 31 has less to do with the fact that they do terrible things and more to do with the fact that by introducing them the way that they got introduced it undermined a lot of the moral authority that came from Trek in previous generations right. uh, so yeah I mean I think that's a very interesting arguable point did they make the war worse well probably many things that they did made the war worse. But then there were all kinds of strategic decisions that could also have made the war worse. Hey, look, was uh, uh, murdering Vrenak, did that make things better or worse? Was there some alternate uh, way that that could have played out? Maybe, but we don't know because this is the version of the story that we have. And um, 
I'll well, jump in here. Oh, go ahead. I guess in a way, unless they unless they focus their efforts on ending the war, they didn't make it better. Yes. Yeah. 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 Good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll just very quickly say here to this other question: uh, How sure are you that the Pa race are enemies of the prophets? I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not at all. I'm, I'm not convinced that they are. I'm not necessarily convinced the prophets are the good guys, uh, you know, the, the white hat good guys. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced that the paw race weren't uh, just being manipulated as part of whatever the paw race ultimate goal was, which we still don't know. Um, I feel like this is an aspect of the story. And there's another email coming up toward the end that I, I think will also uh, clarify this a little bit. I feel like that's an aspect of the story that just kind of went in so many weird directions and, and DS nine's focus on what it's uh, spiritual discussion, what, what the socio religious aspects would be went a very different direction. And right. I, I'm not convinced and I know much more about the prophets now than I did at the beginning. It's the interesting way that they frame the pod rates though, because the only real the only real, uh, I guess, indications that they were evil were one, they and the prophets, when they inhabited Jake and Kira, were firing, you know, they were firing magic at each other. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily exonerate one or the other. The second time we saw the paw race was when Kira, uh, she, you know, um, went to Empok Nor and she encountered Dakot there, and Dakot was head of the paw race cult there. Yeah. They label him as a cult. They put red armbands on the people. Sure. If you want to frame something as evil, that's what you do. You call him a cult and you stick red armbands on him. Sure. But does that necessarily mean that you gave yourself the opportunity to even explore or examine what that meant? No. The writers framed him as being evil. So, but are they though? It's kind of like the fallen angels of heaven. You know, you have the archangels versus Lucifer, but Lucifer was one of the archangels. In fact, he was the archangel. Yeah. So... He's evil, right? Right. But that, that's <laughs> uh, it's that sort of black and white uh, TV storytelling in, mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. All right. What do we have next here? Okay. So here comes an email from Randy. Greetings, gentlemen, and felicitations. I and I believe it is pronounced tally ho. <laughs> I have been binge listening to the podcast for weeks now, and I am up to the end of TNG and the beginning of your coverage of Deep Space Nine. Thank you for your in-depth and thoughtful consideration of all things Trek. One of the many things I appreciate are the recurring themes, times when a trope or action causes you to launch into a familiar tirade. (laughs) One such thing is the ongoing discussion of plastic surgery in the future. After all, we've had so many instances of humans or aliens masquerading as something or someone else that it naturally begs the question of how the procedure actually goes down. We never see the transformation as it happens, only the end result. So it made me wonder... Do you think they use transporter, the transporter, in altering someone's appearance? I think that transporter tech would be amazing in regular surgery, i.e. beam out the appendix or the gunk in your arteries, <laughs> or to take it a step further, use the pattern buffer to repair that broken leg. After all, the transporter remembers what your bone was like before it was broken, what your bone was like before it was broken. So why not take it even farther? The buffer knows what Worf's forehead looks like and what Picard's dome looks like. If you need Picard to look like a Klingon, could you just program the transporter to mix and match? Just saying. Maybe next time this comes up, because you know it will, it might be <laughs> worth discussion or not. Just an idea. Anyway, keep up the good work. Hoping to see you in Vegas someday. L L A P. 
Thank uh, you, Randy. That's too fun, Randy. Thank you. And, you know, became that much more relevant when we saw Descartes' transformation in the final arc on uh, DS9. And in mm-hmm. fact, somebody else wrote in, I think they left a comment on Facebook and just said, like, what, what happens to all that Cardassian neck stuff you just keep it in a jar (laughs) and then then you go get it when you're done get that next stuff right right um i so very interesting actually even though this is a a fun kind of light email and yeah it'll come up again i'm sure um i love that idea about using transporter technology for a surgery yeah if you can just point to something in the body that doesn't need to be there now you also need to heal the wound that you create by just removing something but you know if there's a a foreign object embedded if you get hit with a traditional projectile or something and you just need to remove it sure transporter tech would set you right up surgery seems a little more difficult though because the transporter, you know, what is it remembering? Well, it's remembering literally the atomic structure of every, you know, down to an atomic level, everything that makes up that being that is going through the transporter and then and memories, it. neural yeah. pathways. Yeah, right, right. All the neural pathways, everything. So if you start to change it, it seems that you know, you're, you're, you're bordering on messing with the DNA of that individual in order to make certain physical traits express one way or the other. That, that seems like it would be quite a bit more dangerous. You know, I think about the surgery that we see on Star Trek as being uh, a more advanced version of what we got in, you know, Logan's run with New You. You know, they're using right. lasers to, like, make incisions and instantly heal and, you know, it, definitely cleaner and nicer. But, yeah, could you use could you use essentially a transporter to implant something? Like if you were trying to manipulate bone or, or put in an implant to express, like, Klingon ridges or Cardassian ridges or, mm-hmm. or Bajoran nose ridge, you know? It, yeah, maybe. Why not? I read somewhere a long time ago, because right, you know you have these discussions as one does, as we're doing right now, about what how, how the transporter can manipulate someone's uh, genetic material. Like, mm-hmm. say for instance, you know people that I'm sure they cured cancer. You can basically beam cancer and tumors out yeah. of a body. You can beam weight out mm-hmm. of someone's body, or change the the buffer to trim off twenty pounds of yeah. someone, and then just kind of you know beam them back into a thinner, better version of themselves. <laughs> right. But I did remember having a conversation about how that, even in its most infinitesimal form, is a violation of the eugenics wars accord. Because oh. supposedly you are not allowed to do that in a way that it produces a better version of you aside from the normal occurrence of how somebody evolves. So if somebody's bone was broken, that means that's just a weaker version of that bone when it heals. But if you replace the bone as if it were never broken, that means that this person has now been genetically altered outside of the normal occurrences of their lives. So Hmm. that goes way into the weeds of what are the eugenics accords, but that's what I understood. Any type of genetic manipulation when it comes to weight you know, any type of like, uh, like implanting hair in Picard, like why wouldn't Picard want a full head of hair? I don't know. You know, is there a reason why? Or say, you know, why wouldn't somebody just want to be like the perfect, you know, fittest, thinnest version of themselves? All they have to do is just pay and walk through a transporter and boom, 
instant sure. weight loss. Sure. I mean, look, we, we even we cured aging by putting uh, Dr. Pulaski through uh, the transporter, you know. So and there's all kinds of interesting you – know, that, that's sort of the problem the longer that Star Trek goes on. It's like you have to find new and interesting ways to solve the problems that the writers create. And the transporter became this magic box for a lot of that. Um, right. Uh, fortunately, I feel like we've gotten away from some of that. There was a lot less use of the transporter in DS9 than there was sure. in uh, TOS or TNG. But I, it's, I, you know, it's a fun, interesting idea. And when, when is it ethical to do that? Like if you have the tools in front of you to save somebody, to help somebody, then whether it's a transporter or a scalpel, use the one that does the job, you know? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's move on here just so we uh, are respectful of everybody's time. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a comment from David. This is a Facebook comment. Uh, there are many Davids, so <laughs> not sure which one this was, but he says, uh, I think I prefer DS9 to TNG, even though a handful of great TNG episodes are still higher than most DS9. But on average, you just have more dynamic characters and you also have a greater number of established actors. My vote for character with the best arc has to be Nog. He goes from bratty creep to self-righteous Federation officer to tragic victim to wonderful human being. Well, he is Ferengi, uh, mm-hmm. who teaches us how to conquer our pain. That's another theme that'll come up a little bit later because that was a, uh, a question that we got that we tackled in our last in our roundtable episode with Earl, which was uh, what character we felt like had the best arc. And the thing is, they all have great arcs. They really do. Do they? So, all of them? All of them? Well, okay, um, most of them. <laughs> mo- <laughs> most of them. And and Nog certainly does, you know. Uh, I, I, I feel like In the Pale Moonlight was a beautifully told episode. And it, it still left us with some interesting questions to discuss uh, when, when we got to that on, uh, on Mission Log. So, yeah, David, you know, you're not wrong. Definitely don't. I mean, it's only a paper either. moon. It's only a paper moon. Uh, oh, oh, it's only a paper. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Don't, don't mix us up. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. right. Yeah. So uh, I got nothing else to say for that, David, other than uh, absolutely, you know, it's a great choice. Yeah. Nox, great character. I still like Kira. Kira went mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, uh, Bajoran terrorist freedom fighter who hated the Cardassians with every fiber of her being to training one of their people yeah. to become the next great leader of Cardassia or the next great freedom fighter of Cardassia. To put that all aside, to put everything that she's fought for, everything that like defined who she was at one point in time, to yeah. teach somebody how to be that person that would define a, 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 the civilization that oppressed hers. Now, I think that's phenomenal. That's like amazing storytelling. Yeah. Well, and, and look, we've beat this drum many times, but uh, to me, you know, that change goes back to that phenomenal episode duet where that is the moment that Kira starts to see the enemy as a a being for whom you can feel some empathy and compassion and with that death at the end her utter frustration and heartbreak sadness at what just happened because that's the kind of thing that then puts them all behind again in their ability to embrace their own futures and see that the way forward is to have compassion for who once was their enemy you know mm-hmm. that uh, that's it, it's a beautifully told episode we've said that many many times here um but that arc that you're talking about i think about those moments when i think about kira's growth right you know? yep 
Mm-hmm. So, um, hey, we will uh, get right back to your comments and questions and our answers uh, right after a break, right after an ad from this week's sponsor. Norman, who do we got? So I don't know if you know this, John, because you enjoy coffee. I assume you enjoy a good cup of coffee in the morning, a good hot cup of coffee, a good fresh hot cup of coffee in the morning. I do. All of I do. Both. Yeah, pretty yeah. much every morning. It is a necessity. Yeah. But I didn't know this until I was educated on coffee a little bit. But did you know that most coffee is actually dull, right? It's, and you, don't, you want to know where it is being sourced from. Mm. But sometimes, mm. you know, when you're in that fog in the morning and you just want to make your coffee. You really don't care where it's from. You just want it to be hot and delicious and fresh. And you just do the same thing you do every morning. But instead of standing in front of all of these options of coffee at the store, you have your Keurigs and you have your fresh ground and you have your French press and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Let trade coffee help you find something new to love. Oh, I love this idea. So here's how it works. Trade Coffee sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced, that's a very important phrase there, beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship it free to you as often as you like whole or ground. So whether you're a coffee nerd or you just want a better daily cup, and that would be me, not a coffee nerd, but I definitely appreciate my coffee and I definitely want to taste a better cup. Trade's real coffee experts taste over 400 roasts and they use technology to match you and your tastes to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and brewing methods. So, you know, that that's what I did. I said, hey, I'm I'm not an expert, but here are the flavor profiles that I like, and I tend to use a French press. So send me what you got, and let me tell you, they have knocked it out of the park every time. So on their website, you want to take their coffee quiz to get started. Trade Coffee guarantees you'll love your first bag or they'll replace it for free. And Trade has been featured by the New York Times, Wired, GQ, and has delivered over 5 million bags of coffee. Their subscription is no hassle. Skip shipments, change your frequency, or cancel at any time. I don't know why you would, because once you find a coffee you love, you stick with it. Just just keep it coming. Keep it Mm -hmm. coming. Yeah. I mean, look, there there are entire starships that will, you know, take a, a little excursion to a nebula. Just go get coffee. So, this is true. Yeah, why would you just allow Trade Coffee to deliver it to your home? Much easier that way. No trip to the Delta Quadrant required. And check it out. For our listeners right now, Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash mission log. So all you have to do to get started is you take the quiz just like I did, just like Norman did at drinktrade.com slash mission log and start your journey to your perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash mission log for $20 off your first three bags. So next up, John, we have an email from Jason. Right on. So upon my rewatch of this episode, it dawned on me that what you leave behind appeared to be heavily influenced by J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, especially the final book, The Return of the King. I am, of course, only referring to the book and not the films, as it would have been in production at the time this episode was written. Many of the plot beats are there. A large, seemingly decisive battle where forces of good win at the last minute. Gondor and allies versus the Orcs Federation and allies versus the Dominion. Having to destroy the source of evil by throwing it into a powerful fire while simultaneously killing a major antagonist, Sisko tackling Dukat into the fire, caves, Frodo and Gollum struggle over the ring. And finally, the way in which it ends, 
where neither Cisco nor Frodo is truly allowed to return home, and the two are called away to live amongst the gods. Cisco is taken to join and live amongst the prophets, and Frodo is forced to sail to Valinor to live out the rest of his life because he can't quite live painlessly in the Shire. I'm assuming you guys have read the novels. Sorry for the spoilers if you didn't. So <laughs> why do you think the final book works, assuming you do, in a way what you leave behind didn't? Did the DS9 writers do a clumsy job of trying to adapt the novel, and would they have been better suited had they not turned to this literary classic for inspiration? All right. So look, full disclosure, um, I have not read the Lord of the Rings novels. I'm really, I'm not a, a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. I, I appreciate uh, the Peter Jackson movies. I think they're artistic. I think they're epic. I think they're really well done, but they're just not totally my bag. So when we got this email from Jason, I wrote back and I said, this is for Norm. <laughs> uh, well done, sir. Yeah, yeah. But but look, but I will, because I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about it. But I will say this, and, and we'll get into this uh, with other emails, uh, as we have often. Um, great storytelling is great storytelling. And there mm -hmm. are themes that show up in tales of the hero's journey. I mean, you look at Star Wars and, uh, you know, compared to Joseph Campbell and, um, and these great mythic structures of what has to happen to these characters. I don't think or assume that anybody in the DS9 writer's room said, ooh, we have to do this like uh, Lord of the Rings. Right. But I think what they did is probably a good majority of them had read it and they had also read a lot of other great literature and knew about mythic structure from you know any number of angles and felt like, well, we're ending this story in a mythic way. Here are the things we want to do to our characters. But, but that's just me. So uh, what are you being more the expert by far? What do well, you think? I, I love how Jason is finding these points. I don't necessarily agree that you're right. The writer's room didn't say like, you know, what would be really good here. Let's end this like Return of the King and then have like five different ways of saying goodbye as the fellowship returns to its various points back to the Shire. There is a certain level of epic mythic storytelling here as these great armies are fighting over, well, supposedly in, in Deep Space Nine, they're fighting over what? They're fighting over the Alpha Quadrant. But this is where I think that Jason's analogy falls, falls apart because mm. the entirety of the Fellowship of the Ring in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Fellowship Two Towers and Return of the King, is about following the destruction of the ring. It's been set up since pretty much chapter one, mm. you know, in Fellowship of the Ring, all the way to when Frodo destroys it at Mount Doom. There is nothing like that in Deep Space Nine. That <laughs> plot line doesn't exist. So yeah, there is yeah. a similarity of Frodo fighting Gollum, uh, a la Sisko fighting Dukat in the fire caves that represents Mount Doom, but they didn't destroy the ring. They had no token to destroy that would destroy evil mm. itself, right? Now, you can argue that that was the book of the Paw Wraiths, but the book of the Paw Wraiths isn't what Sisko has has suffered through all this time to destroy since season one. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah, there, yeah. there is no focal point really to hinge. This particular point is that Jason is making. Now there are similarities. Sure. But of course, great writers would have read great novels and this is what that's like. So what I do like though, is that there is a very strong similarity to the ring bearers, a la Frodo, a la Cisco, never being able to find peace because the weight and the guilt and the, 
their tainted souls cannot live anymore in normal society in a peaceful life. So they mm-hmm. have to leave. They have to take the, these, these burdened souls, like all the ring bearers, and take them into the West to live a life of peace, like Bilbo did, like Frodo did, like yeah. Galadriel and all of the other ring bearers. They left yeah. to the West. So that's probably the closest similarity to both stories. But I do appreciate the attempt, Jason, that you found in comparing these two. Very well done. Yeah. Nice. All mm-hmm. right. So let's move on here. We have a, oh, oh, this is a comment on the Mission Log website, missionlogpodcast.com from Daryl. Mm-hmm. And uh, also full disclosure, uh, he sent an email copy and uh, I emailed him back. And yes, I, I apologize. I, I might've felt a little, a uh, little pugnacious, a little, little defensive. And I'll see if I can uh, temper my response a little better this time. So here's what Daryl had to say. Good episode, but, and here we go. Mm -hmm. When you were considering which next-gen characters would be a good fit for DS9, how come there was no consideration for Dr. Crusher or Commander Troy? I personally prefer them on the Enterprise D and E, but you consider just about every regular and recurring character, but not the two main female characters and great characters at that. All right, so that's the first comment all right and then the second part here regarding in the pale moonlights discussion with all due respect i think maybe we're going a bit too deep with the thought that captain cisco should have been held accountable for his role in bringing the romulans into the dominion war the key word is war it was a necessary evil like the dropping of the hydrogen bombs that ended world war ii the federation more than likely wouldn't have won the war without the romulans live long and prosper daryl Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So take on part of this here. <laughs> well, I mean, the first one, no, I mean, that, that's a good point, but we're looking mm-hmm. at it purely from a marketing standpoint. I mean, that's the reason why you bring over a crossover character is not because the character is well-loved per se, it's because they're highly marketable. And I don't think that Dr. Crusher or Commander Troy at that time were the most marketable characters to cross over into DS9. Worf was. Yeah. Let's be honest. You know, Worf yeah. was, uh, I don't think that O'Brien was, to be honest with you. Like, yeah. He's probably my least favorite story that happened. He had great episodes, but not the greatest, most interesting character arc. So you want to bring over somebody who's marketable, and Riker would have been way more marketable than Troy or Crusher as, as well, a crossover character. I, I agree with you. However, I, I think that in our, if I'm remembering correctly, because he's talking about the roundtable that we had with Earl, mm-hmm. um, you know, we we weren't looking at those questions before we answered them. So we're just sort of doing this mental, like jogging through who are the characters that come to mind. Oh, we were thinking like Barclay and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I I settled on, well, I said Roe because, I mean, she's Bajoran and yeah. I would like to have seen, you know, more of her and then how does she tie in being Starfleet, uh, but also Bajor, and how, how does that actually uh, fit into to her story? But I, I feel like we just sort of, we were picking these names out of thin air, and we just got to a place that, that we were satisfied with our answers, so we weren't looking at the cast list going like, ooh, let's consider everybody. To Daryl's point, 
Yes, Crusher is a very good character. Troy is a very good character. And how many times did we say that DS9 needed a counselor <laughs> until, until they yeah. finally got one? So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, but Daryl, it wasn't uh, a calculated slight against either of them. We're, we're just right. literally sitting here thinking off the top of our heads like, oh, what about this? We got to ones that we liked and then we moved on. But I, I still don't think I would have settled on Crusher. And I also, unless they had really found a way to insert Troy into the action of DS9, I, as much as those people needed a counselor, well, I think they found it with Vic, you know? Yeah. And, 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 with, Esri, Esri. and with Esri, yeah. you know? So, right. yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, agree. maybe more of a recurring character. I think that, I think that Troy would have been really good. The thing is... Uh, and I'm not even Worf's biggest fan, but I, I think that when you you know have to pick you know, who's going to be a crossover character, I don't know. Did they do like a random poll and say, hey, you know what, Crusher mm. and Troy, maybe their stories have been told and maybe that's as far as they're going to go, you know, but does Worf have more, more story to tell? I don't know. I, didn't, I don't think he did, but they decided to bring him over anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Well, and, you know, and it would have felt really weird to just have them pop in as guest stars like we we got. Riker just as a guest star and we had Q as a guest star you know but it's like okay that that just feels like a one-off kind of ratings grab yeah it doesn't really feel like it has meaning and it was a Um, cheat with Riker it was Tom well exactly yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) so uh but what about the I think the far more uh juicy part of this comment uh and that is the second part here about uh necessary evil I believe what Daryl is saying is should have should Captain Cisco have been accountable for his role in bringing the Romulans into the Dominion War. The key word is war. So are you saying that during war, criminal actions can't be held accountable? It's, I mean, that seems yeah. like the argument here. And I'm going to absolutely disagree. I mean, it's like, of course, they have to be accountable just because it's war. And you make a decision that I don't think that he actually had the authority to make. He didn't consult his decision with any of the higher ups from yeah. the Federation council. As a matter of fact, unless he actually admits to what he did, the Federation council is going to give him a freaking medal for what he did. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the Federation more than likely wouldn't have won the war without the Romulans. Well, I don't know. Ask the Jack pack. Did they put that in their calculations of whether or not they were going to win the war? I mean, they're like the right. three of the smartest intellects, like in the known universe, why don't you ask them? Why didn't Cisco consult with them and say, if we bring the Romulans into the war, what are your analytics going to tell me whether or not we're going to win? Because I really don't want to risk like millions of lives in my own personal honor on a guess. Yeah. Right. And, and look, I mean, I, I have to throw out some other key words here, which would be ethics and morality and integrity and law. You know, it it, it is the most dangerous of slippery slopes to say that we get to suspend our sense of principle when things get really tough, that that we get to allow for these necessary evils because uh, this particular situation was really uh, too difficult to deal with in any other way. I would also refer back to, because this has been such an ongoing conversation, I admitted in an episode of Engage that I might have done exactly the same thing that Cisco did in in the pale moonlight. 
because his back was against the wall. He was emotionally compromised at all those deaths that, that he reads on the boards every Friday. I get it. I get the motivation that got him to that point. But what I would expect is the accountability that comes after that. You know, Daryl, you bring up uh, the fact that we dropped hydrogen bombs at the end of World War II. Yeah, we did. We, we did it for the entire world to see. And we know who the people were who developed it and the situation, you know, the conditions around the development of the, those weapons. And it, it is a – the fact that it happened, yes, it, it is a blight that changed the entire course of history from that point on. But the point is we are here to debate it. We are here to talk about it. It's not like the people who created it just disappeared and didn't feel some responsibility and accountability for their role in it. You know, J. Robert Oppenheimer absolutely felt like we've opened Pandora's box here. Mm -hmm. and, he, and, and he talked about that until his death. But the transparency was there. Yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what the, the, the hinging point is here, is that there was the transparency of that decision by the people who made that decision with the government. And, and it's not to say that governments and, and our government, as you and I are here in the United States, or people listen to the show from all over the world, it's not to say that our government doesn't do terrible things and secretive things and has throughout history. No question about it. The Agreed. point still being that if those things come out, they, uh, they all can and should be held to scrutiny. We right. should be able to look honestly at our histories and our present and say, this is a wrong decision. This is an unethical, immoral decision, and we are better off if we take a different course. See, the thing is with what, what the analogy is that Daryl's bringing is that the Romulans just entered the war. Nobody knows why, aside from that, maybe the, you know, of course, the Senator Vrenak was killed and then the Romulans, quote unquote, organically entered the war. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not like the like, you know, like the fat man and little boy bombs just blew up out of nowhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. right? right. This organically right. exploded on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. They were, you know, there's a history behind that. There's accountability behind that. You know, there's decision making behind that. There's a paper trail behind that. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, let's move on. <laughs> All right. So here's an email from another David. Uh -huh. Not sure if it's the same David or a different David. I think it was a, a lot different of David's David. here, and I'm, yeah. I'm sad that no Paul's yet. Yeah. Uh, no, no, shocking. Yeah. Right. But this is David's turn, the David's turn. All right. Hi, John and Norm. Uh, great recap and analysis, as always, of what you leave behind. But in saying that, I think you didn't go deep enough on one topic. I remember watching this in its first run and many times over the years and being mad as hell that Ben left Jake. While you covered this a bit in your recap, I think the conversation goes much deeper. Anyone that watches DS9 knows the episode, The Visitor. It might even be the best episode of any Trek of all time. In The Visitor, Ben sees Jake completely fall apart and ruin his entire life due to Ben's absence. At the end of The Visitor, Ben is the only person that remembers and intimately knows that altered timeline and how his son was affected. In The Visitor, when he returned to the Defiant, he was crying while hugging Jake, knowing that his son can now achieve better and more. This memory had to haunt him forever. I am a father of two grown boys, and I identified with that situation just as a viewer. So when Ben decides to leave and doesn't see Jake and completely disregards anything he learned about Jake from The Visitor, 
I think it went from making Ben the best father in Star Trek to the single worst father in Star Trek. Yes, even considering Worf. <laughs> that is a low bar, my friend. <laughs> Thank, it is very likely that Jake will spend his time now looking to get his dad back, this time from the wormhole rather than a subspace problem. Ben knows Jake's likely future now and has allowed that to happen. A complete disgrace that could have simply been solved by spending two to three minutes in scene with Ben explaining things to Jake and asking for his permission, maybe even indicating that Jake could join him as a lineage of the prophets. While I thought the ending of the series was pretty good overall, to this this fact to this day makes me angry every time I watch the episode. Whew. Yeah. Um, David, I hear you. And um, I, I feel this is another one of those topics that, that we've uh, discussed quite a bit since that episode. And I, I feel you, man. Um, you, you know, we, we tried to cover that a little bit in the, uh, the roundtable they did with Earl, saying that, well, the, there was this discussion about how Ben was just gone and he was just taken by the prophets. But then they went back and they reshot a scene where he says, well, I might be back. It might be years or it might be yesterday. And they just they, they tried to leave it vague like that. But the point is, he's gone. That last mm-hmm. shot that we see he is gone. And it breaks my heart every time. I don't see that as any sort of positive, satisfactory ending for those characters. Maybe for yeah. Ben, but we don't know what he's up to. Right. Yeah. You know, and, you know, thinking about that scene again, uh, when Ben returns and appears before Cassidy, Cassidy's sitting next to Jake and Jake asks, are you okay? And he's like, I just saw your father. That really bothered me, right? Because mm-hmm. Jake's like, well, why didn't he appear to me? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Right. I mean, think about like the yeah. first, like the first time we met Jake, you know, he was trapped in debris on the Saratoga mm-hmm. and Ben had to save him because Jennifer was already dead. Mm-hmm. And then they were on that bridge together in the hollow suite. They're trying to repair a life that's been irrevocably changed and damaged, you yeah. know, and Ben says, I have to be with Jake because the only way we're going to get through this is to, to be with each other together. And then the visitor, you know, just adds more to that entire story, that fabric. So I said this on the on the uh, podcast on our our final podcast of you know what we left what you leave behind and I'll double down on it. I think that it was insulting. It insulted mm-hmm. me that Jake was didn't have one last scene with Ben in some capacity in some explanation in a, a throwaway line. It doesn't matter as long as they got to see each other one last time. And Ben goes, I have to go. I know you don't understand. You probably never will. I don't understand, but I have to leave. Yeah. And Jake would be like, with everything that I've seen so far. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, yeah, okay. That's it. That's it. 30 <laughs> seconds. 30 seconds. And it's yeah. all of this would have been changed forever. Yeah. Right? So uh, it, it's still I, I still think about Cassidy. I still think about their their baby. I mean, that would have been better to me, but it's still it, it just you, you know, given what we just saw, like in this email, David, you, you stated it so eloquently about the visitor and, and how much of an emotional impact that would have had. And it's like that all just went out the window. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's rough. Okay. Email here from Jason. Uh, it's a different Jason, I think. We'll see. <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm. He says, so this is one of those Trek debates that will go on ad nauseum. However, I do think that something important has been left out of this discussion and it should be brought up. Every historical genocide has been premised on the, quote, big lie, and people who perpetuate them believe them so thoroughly that they don't think they're doing anything wrong. 
The indigenous peoples of the Americas were no threat to the European colonialists. The Jews of Europe were no threat to Germans, and today's Uyghur population is no threat of terrorism and separatism that the Chinese government say they are. Yet what we see from the next generation in Deep Space Nine is that the Borg and Changelings, respectively, do appear to constitute that kind of threat. The Borg seem interested in perpetuating genocides against numerous species, and the female Changeling didn't bat an eye ordering the eradication of the Cardassians. Wayun seemed to uh, have shown more humanity in that scene. Neither party shows any interest in negotiating with the Federation in good faith, and both seemed interested in pursuing war without remorse. Given that we've seen none of that seems to be a lie. I'm not trying to justify the decision. I believe Picard made the right call with Hugh and Section 31 made the wrong one with their virus. But it's important to recall that real-life genocides have never had the dynamics we've seen on screen in Trek. Similarly, we've seen on screen many times when our heroes deliberately eradicate a threat. I'm thinking about Kirk killing the last salt vampire, destroying the space amoeba, or Picard decapitating the Borg Queen, and seeming to kill every drone on the Enterprise E, and seeming remorseless about not having attempted to rescue any drones from the collective. Anyway, this is a topic that will probably be debated forever, and I'm sure as you explore Voyager and talk about Picard on the live show, the debate will be complicated even more. Also, sorry for possibly getting your show banned in mainland China with the weaker comments, but I feel what I said had to be said. Keep up the good work. P.S. Again, uh, you can read this on Engage. Thanks for having already read one of my emails on the show before, and I have no problem if you prioritize others ahead of this one. Well, Jason, yeah, uh, thank you because we did discuss one of yours on Engage, and then this is kind of a, a hybrid episode slash Engage that we're doing here. And um, I, I think your points are excellent, and, and they are very well taken. Um, and since I've just done a lot of talking, Norm, go to it. <laughs> I'll come back. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, th these are very, very large moral concepts that Jason is bringing up. And I think that it's it's very difficult to kind of like see both sides of the situation when the narrative is completely slanted in one way. It's the narrative of the writers of Star Trek trying to show a a specific evil versus a specific good. You know, in this case, the Federation is supposed to be the specific good and the changelings and their, their master plan, whatever it is, is supposed to be the specific evil. Uh, even though that we're only seeing that from the perspectives of a handful of characters, specifically the female changeling and the decisions that she made to eradicate 800,000 Cardassians at a whim. You know, we did talk about this at the end of what, you mm. know, what you leave behind as Maybe it was the only course of action she even understood. She was no military strategist. That's the thing, right? She was just a reactionary to being, being turned into the prey instead of the predator this time. And she was reacting in that fashion. It's either I survive or they survive. Mm -hmm. There is no middle ground. I, here's the thing with the Borg. It's like, I think the more that you know, Star Trek tried to humanize the Borg, the less interesting the Borg became. Sure. The Borg were just, they were just sure. supposed to be this nameless, faceless threat. Once you gave them a name and a face, it became like any other species that you have to deal with from a moral standpoint. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that the Borg is just supposed to be this immovable object, this irresistible force against the narrative of Picard and his ship going out there and encountering them thanks to Q and then eventually having to deal with them because if the Federation's finest the entire fleet can't deal with the borg how are you going to stop them they're like terminators right nobody gets yeah. warm and fuzzy about trashing terminators all day right. long right because they're supposed to be like that so 
I've never really been all that interested in kind of like the Borg storyline of whether they become sentient or independent, because that's not what they were supposed to be. I think they just became really popular in the marketing milieu of Star Trek. And then you had to give them a little bit of a story. But for me, the Cardassians, I mean, the, the founders and the Cardassians as kind of like these fascist evil powers yeah. and the nuances that lie therein, I thought that was far more interesting. And I think that's where I like where Jason's coming from it, you know, from that point of view. Yeah, I, I've got nothing really more to to add to that other than just to to appreciate that, Jason. Jason, you're giving us a lot of food for thought here. Um, look, I, I think in all of those situations, we we still have to come down on the side and say, like, yeah, the genocide is the wrong choice. When given a choice, that is the wrong choice, no matter what. And morally, ethically, Star Trek has has always towed that line. You can understand the motivation of the more fearful, paranoid aspects uh, of the culture saying like, oh, we have to be prepared for any outcome. We need to prepare this virus that will, yeah, it'll kill some of the founders. It will also kill all of the founders. Uh, You can understand the motivation there, but the cooler heads have to prevail and say, okay, but what we're doing is condemning an entire species to extinction. Right. Um, and and that, that has to be a debate that wasn't had, <laughs> you know? It reminds me of that scene in Braveheart with Edward the Longshanks where he says, you know, archers. And then one of his commanders says, but my Lord, won't we hit our men? He goes, yeah, but we'll hit theirs as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, the blanket yeah. policy of, of a, a genocidal strategy is wrong. And it begs the question, John, mm-hmm. if that's so, then why did the Federation Council withhold the formula that would end a genocide? Yeah, it, it, it's, it boggles the mind. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's wrap it up today with a two-part comment uh, from Facebook. And this is from uh, John. Go ahead, Norman. Alrighty. So John says, looking back at seven seasons of DS9, two themes really stuck out to me. One, a change in TV writing POV. That's point of view for all of you who are keeping score. (laughs) From season one through about season three, the TV rating was more closely to a television Western of the 50s and 60s. Many of the DS9 characters were fulfilling various Western tropes. Cisco's the town mayor, Odo's the sheriff marshal, Doc is the doc. (laughs) <laughs> Young and well-educated, but no real-life experience town doctor. This helped to introduce the characters, but the, they eventually got stuck just waiting for things to happen. Then from seasons four to seven, the writing POV became a World War II type TV show. They got a ship, an enemy force to fight, tales of espionage and dirty secrets, and tons of space battles. Of course, bits of romance and family storylines got, uh, got put in to break up the war story. The only things that connected these two writing POVs were the cast and DS9 itself. Number two. The advancement of the criticism of Christianity in general, and more specifically, the Catholic Church. DS9, again, like TOS and TNG, shows Christianity in a negative light by emphasizing the negative aspects of the Catholic Church via Kai Wen. The writers chose to go for the low-hanging fruit of bashing Christianity while treating the other alien religions with respect. They didn't take up the challenge of attacking the wrongs of Judaism, Islam, or Buddhism via the Bajoran's religious ideas. If I had been able to submit a question to the panel, it would have been this. In a time in which Paramount was looking for more Star Trek for TV, what storylines or characters could have developed into a DS9 spinoff show to be on its own? I personally would have loved to see a show based around Nog as a Starfleet cadet who finally gets onto Red Squadron. I think 
you could avoid the problem of the series becoming basically Wesley Crusher Space Cadets, but more into something like a more serious version of Head of the Class, showing highly intelligent young cadets having to get over their individual hangups to work as a crew slash team could have been very interesting if cast right. So know that there's my opinions, how I view this particular Star Trek series. It is not my intention to offend anyone on their personal religious views, but to question the group on something I observed. I hope that everyone has a good start to February, and I look forward to future discussions about Star Trek Voyager, LLAP. Thank you, John. Wow. Yeah, there, there's a lot to chew on there. Tackle it point by point. Yeah, yeah I'll just take him in order here. So uh, let's talk about that change in writing POV. Yeah, yeah, I, I think absolutely. You know, they were going for the, uh, what they were going for was Casablanca. And they said it, it, it's like Rick's Cafe in space and everything happens there. Every, everybody comes to that place. So that'll be how we get action in our show. And you know whether it's network pressure well you know studio pressure they changed that pov a bit they brought in the ship they went for these big storylines these big epic uh war plot lines and that happens i i I think for better or for worse you know i I think there were very good stories told about the dominion war less so about the klingon war i think that there was certainly ample space to develop more of what was happening on the station and and stick with that kind of Rick's Cafe in space feel. But maybe at the time when you're having to deal with eyeballs on screens live, that wouldn't have been as successful as maybe you could do it now in streaming. But I, I think that's a very apt uh, description of, of the change in tone. I feel like the, the World War II tone was kind of there from the beginning anyway, just because you really had the Cardassians as a stand-in for Nazi occupiers, and you had Bajorans there as those who were persecuted. Although, you know, and Nana brought this up and said, you know, they, they really can be the stand-in for anybody mm-hmm. who is the, the powerful abuser in that case. Before we move on to the other points, Norman, anything you want to add there? I, mean, I see that clearly because mm-hmm. I said this before on the podcast that I think that my favorite era of Deep Space Nine were episodes one through three, because I liked how mm-hmm. it was less focused and concentrated on a war story and more concentrated on this generalized story. I mean, it did have, you know, the, the movement of the changeling uh, threats and the Cardassian threat and all of these coming to a boil, but not necessarily in a way where we, you know, they fully committed to kind of like this, this uh, grander epic World War II type of narrative, yeah. um, you know, or a war story. It doesn't necessarily have to be World War II, a war story. So I, I really liked, I don't know, I, I just kind of liked the, the attitude, the atmosphere, you know, the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the overall way that it was approached for the first three seasons as opposed to the last four seasons. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk about this, the advancement of criticism of Christianity in general, and more specifically the Catholic Church. Well, okay, you got another hour, uh, <laughs> because I, I think that this is a, a much more complicated, nuanced uh, uh, answer or discussion that, that could be given to this. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about DS9 is 
representing some complexity in religious belief in Star Trek that other Star Trek simply don't have. You know, we, we got glimpses of some vague spirituality in the original series, um, but, but very, very little. And then even in TNG, there's sort of the acknowledgement that there are beliefs that, that different cultures have different beliefs, but we never explore those at all. And then DS9 comes along and you make Bajor the center of, uh, at least for those, you know, first three seasons, really you make Bajor the center of where our concerns are and the, the complex nature of their religious and social and political lives was a major part of the story. But then you got Kai Wen kind of taking over as the second banana bad guy next to Gul Dukat. I don't think that is a specific criticism of a specific religion. I think that is a stand-in for all of the ideas that they did have about trying to craft a complex and somewhat realistic you know we, we want to have a bad guy who is motivated by things that we can understand that aren't necessarily wrong but are misguided and abused and misused i i don't take that as a specific attack on any specific belief system hmm. i think that there are similarities in what we see in bajoran spiritual life with any number of spiritual traditions that we have on earth I, you know and and that that's not a criticism of the belief itself i think where we are with kai wen is a criticism on the people who would abuse that system of faith right uh, um right. Like, like i said i i think this is a way longer conversation to have but off the top of my head that that's what i'm getting out of this you you're on the same page yeah you know you can i think that uh depending on where you're from, if you're watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine from uh, a, a westernized mm. a westernized um, viewpoint of organized religion, then sure, maybe you're going to see it in this particular light of Christianity or Catholicism being kind of like a demonized, pardon the pun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if you're going to look at it from an Eastern philosophy, you're going to see like, what I'm saying is that organized religion is what's on trial here in mm -hmm. these characters. Kai Wen represents the worst of organized religion and the fear of what happens when somebody attains that much power in one's organized religion. But she wasn't the only one that was in power. There was someone else before her. There was Kai Opaka, who was beloved mm -hmm. yep. and revered and, yep. and worshipped by her people in the right way. There were other characters like, like Vedic Barail, right? Mm -hmm. also in line for that. So where there's a Kaiopaka, where is there's this lust for power and the, uh, you know, the um, adulation of her followers and the manipulation of the truths behind the scene because she was able to, to uh, manipulate all of that power for her own benefit without really any pushback, you know, from the other members of her organized religion in that society. Of course, mm -hmm. there's going to be abuse. Yeah, but there's also going to be, like I said, before she got into power, there was an, a completely different aspect of the Bajoran religious faith that was represented by far nobler people who are mm -hmm. putting their people first as opposed to their own needs first. So yeah. that is the that is the dynamic of organized religion: those who actually want to serve and those who only serve themselves. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that that comes from honestly any human institution, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Um, yeah, whether it's yeah. politics or personal or religious, that's yeah. yeah you have yeah. those who choose to serve truly. Yeah. You know, they 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 went they want to give everything of themselves to make their people better, their lives better, or they have people that don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, again, I I. I I think it's a provocative and interesting take, but I also feel like that's something that could be explored in a whole other thing. I mean, you talk about Star Trek's attitude toward religion or its exploration of religion. That is a whole can of worms because there are so many expressions of that in different ways. That said, you know, Star Trek as a whole has kind of set itself up uh, as this primarily secular look at our future. And, you know, institutions like Starfleet and the Federation are secular institutions. But that doesn't discount the idea that there are people and there are cultures that maintain beliefs. Now, how that gets expressed in a, you know, 42 minute long TV show. Well, that's going to take on different flavors and it will be influenced by the people who are sitting in the writer's room and right. picking a little bit from here and a little bit from there and, and creating characters that tell the story that they want to tell. I mean, the bottom line, John, yeah. when you really look at it, the further deep, out, the, the, the further and deeper you get out in the space, the bigger the question is, what does God need with a starship? <laughs> that, that is the only question that matters right now. Yeah. And, and just very quickly here, I'll say to John, you know, uh, you, you're talking about what uh, you, you posed this question that would have been for the roundtable. Uh, Paramount had been looking for other storylines, uh, other characters to take from DS9 as a spinoff. What would they be? And you vote for Nog. And yeah, hard to argue with that. I mean, you've kind of kind of go down the list and I think about characters that I would want to revisit. Well, let's see. The O'Briens went back to Earth. Uh, fine. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't really need to spend much time with them. Um, you, you know, Worf. Well, oh, here's here's the here's the sitcom married with. Keiko's uh, married with Kira's children. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's good. Um, you know, I always said that we got the most interesting version of Alexander when they decided to be done with Alexander. Mm. Not that I need a whole series with him, but like I wanted another episode. Just like show show us that he's doing all right. Show us that he's found himself. You know? It would have been cool though if, like, say he had nowhere else to go but. Red Squadron, like if Nog created this dirty dozen type of group. Yeah. Yeah. And pulled some of these ne'er do wells. Maybe it's Nog and Jake and Alexander, you know, and Ooh, yeah. that would have been interesting, right? Yeah. That could have been cool. I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I think that we got better stuff out of uh, Dr. Bashir as we went along. I, I think, you know, uh, Dr. Bashir, Starfleet Medical. Coming, coming soon to a TV near you. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think all the characters are strong, and I would want to spend time with them. Just not Cisco because he, he's in a white void for the next however many hundreds of years. Yeah, I don't think that it's a good idea to make a a spinoff of the spinoff. Yeah, it's not right. like where do you go with that, right? Right, right. I, I'm glad to revisit characters when it comes up and it's natural and it's organic for them to be there. But yeah, I don't think we need to create a whole other, uh, a whole other thing. Like I love and, Cheers and I love Frasier, but I don't really want to see a Niles spinoff. Right? Oh, come on. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I do. I really do. Actually, I'd rather see an Eddie spinoff. There, there you spin-off. go. Yeah. There you go. Okay. 
All right. Well, look, uh, thank you, everybody who contributed to this. I uh, appreciate it. And by the time you hear this, well, we'll be hot on the heels of releasing our first episode looking at Voyager. So uh, it's been quite the ride and mm-hmm. uh, quite a lot of discussion about DS9 that I feel like will never go away. Uh, <laughs> oh, those conversations, these conversations have been going on for what? Quarter of a century. Yeah. Yeah, when they sure have. It. Yeah. They sure have, yeah. So uh, the comments, the questions, they're always uh, they're always anticipated and enjoyed by us. And uh, whether they're in a format like this or engage, again, if you haven't found us there, youtube.com slash Roddenberry Prod or Roddenberry Entertainment. And we'll be releasing more of those in the coming weeks, bit by bit, you know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there to be able to dig into your questions. So thank you all for listening. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.